Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Tom Ritchie, Changeboard's multimedia editor. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe. The Future Talent Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Adam Kingle, the Managing Director for Europe at Duke Corporate Education. Adam leads Duke's business in the region and works with clients on fundamental challenges such as purpose, culture, adaptability, and innovation. In his work as a leadership consultant, he has worked with clients including the BBC, Disney, and GlaxoSmithKline. He is passionate about the subject of leadership for what's next and is writing a book on this topic titled Next Generation Leadership, which he is expected to publish in January 2020. In this podcast, I asked Adam about the societal trends that are driving change in the workplace, how leaders must adapt to meet the needs of their youngest employees, and what the C-suites of the future will look like in the hands of the next generation. Hi Adam, uh, thanks for agreeing to speak with us today. Uh, We're looking forward to having you at this year's Future Talent Conference, um, where you will be speaking about how a new form of leadership is needed in light of a changing society. So just to get the ball rolling, um, what are the changes that are happening in the world today that are driving this change? Thanks for having me. I think what we're seeing uh, in the world right now is an evolution of capitalism. It can be interpreted as a crisis. Mm. But really, I think it's part of a natural evolution. So if we cast our mind back several hundred years, you see that actually capitalism has looked like a lot of different things over the centuries. So feudalism actually was a form of capitalism, and that made way for mercantile capitalism, and that made way for industrial capitalism. And I would argue that's made way over the last hundred years to shareholder capitalism. And I think now we're at that inflection point Mm. where we're about to see something new. Now, what's interesting in terms of asking ourselves where might be the solution space to help us deal with this inflection point is looking at the youngest employees in our organization, the so-called Generation Y. Because not only are these people going to be our leaders uh, that are going to help us navigate these choppy waters, but I think their paradigms actually are consistent with the direction of travel Mm. in which... um, Uh, capitalism is evolving. Um, And of course, for Gen Y, it's not that they just sort of decided to have a different world one day. Like with any generation, they are responding to the context in which they were raised. And we as companies have done them no favors. Mm. We've, We've made pensions dramatically worse than they were for our grandparents. Um, you know, they're looking at uh, societies and, and governments torn apart by the dual forces of liberal democracy on one side and populism and nationalism on the other. They're looking at the prospect of living for a terribly long time, which also concomitantly means they're going to have to work for a very long time. And that changes the definition of one's career. When you no longer, like our grandparents, are assuming you're going to work for, say, 35 years, but let's say almost twice that, that changes the proposition and it changes your relationship between employee and employer. Um, So I think that gives us hopefully just a sense of the rather seismic change that that we're facing uh, in society. 
Yeah. And just and just to clarify before we move on, Gen Y would be people who are born after, is there a specific date? or? Yeah, well, so of course there's always some debate uh, mm. uh, about this. So uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about yeah. it, but just for the sake of our conversation, just between you and me, uh, I use the definition of Generation Y as those born between uh, 1982 and 2004. So these are our youngest employees in our organization right now, but they're up up to their mid-30s mm. at the oldest side. Okay. And uh, you touched on it briefly there, but Generation Y is a very different view of, of work to uh, compared to the people who have been in the workplace for decades or even a shorter period of time. Um, so through your research, um, how would you summarize the difference between the baby boomers, uh, the millennials, and the uh, Generation Y. And I guess there's a bit of a crossover between the millennials and Generation so, Y. So, uh, yeah, I actually use millennial um, in, in, to be the same generation segment as Gen Y. Okay. So the youngest group still mm. in school I call Generation Z, just for, for sake of clarity. Mm. Um, but I think the biggest difference that we see with Gen Y versus baby boomers or Gen X um, is the level of loyalty that they demonstrate to any given employer. And actually what my research over the last 10 years is, is, is telling me is that with every generation, since the post-World War II generation, the average number of employers that a typical person has doubles with every generation. Mm. So our grandparents, you know, those who, were, who grew up uh, probably before World War II, probably only had a couple of employers maximum in their lifetime. For example, my grandfather, both my grandfathers, had one employer their mm. whole lifetime. And one of my grandfathers not only had one employer, he had the same job yeah. for his entire career. Um, but then he, then he retired. And the interesting thing is with those lovely defined benefit pensions that they used to have, yes, he had one job for 35 years, but he was able to retire and be retired comfortably on a final salary pension for 35 years. So he was retired as long as he was working. Um, but currently, so Gen X uh, will have about probably eight employers in their lifetime based on past patterns the, and the, the rate at which they're changing employers. And for Gen Y, it's 16 employers in a lifetime. I, I did a survey for uh, of, of high potential Gen Y. So not just a random cross-section of Gen Ys, but specifically asking people who have been nominated by their companies as our leaders of the future to say, how long do you expect to stay with any your employer? 90% said no more than five years. So if we're you know looking around and saying, oh, Gen Y, they don't want to stay for life. Yeah, that's right. They don't. Um, so that certainly has lots of dramatic implications for the HR sector, not only in terms of retention and recruitment, but development. Um, how do you create a leadership pipeline? Um, and of course, going back to my point about long life, you know, what do you do with a, a, a workforce where people may be working into their seventies, uh, eighties, nineties, dare I say, um, so I think that that was that bit about um, loyalty toward, toward one's company was really what started all of my research around Gen Y, which then led into other questions like, well, how, you know, uh, how do you want to be developed by your employer? What would make you stay? Why would you choose employer A versus employer B, uh, et cetera? I'll get into a lot of that um, at the conference, but I think the main 
point that I want to make in the short podcast is if you're finding that there's a loyalty problem, yes, and that's been quantified. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so you've touched on it there. So increased longevity, obviously, um, I think it's estimated that the, was it more than half of the children born in the UK today may reach the age of 100. Of 100. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing more people work late into their later lives, obviously having more jobs. Um, So how can businesses create an environment that supports the needs and worldviews of these people who are having such a different career career? experience yes well i mentioned before that capitalism evolving is evolving and that also means that management is evolving most of the management philosophy and architectures that we use today are still those that were created um millennia ago in the case of our architectures which is still along you know egyptian and roman military command structures And then the philosophy of management, which goes back at least 100 and plus years with the foundations of scientific management, right? And Frederick Winslow Taylor, the the father of scientific management, which created fantastic wealth through the Industrial Revolution. But that was about efficiency, taking error out, increasing productivity. And it doesn't have to do with some of the challenges, particularly facing developed economies in the 21st century, mm. which is innovation, adaptability. And what we're finding is that the precepts of scientific management are becoming less and less relevant. Unfortunately, most organizations haven't even begun to look for the solution space, let alone found the solution. And again, I think some of the things that we're resisting in terms of what Generation Y is telling us they're looking for in their managers is at least part of the right answer to what 21st century management needs to be in order to respond to an evolving economy, to evolving capitalism, and evolving paradigms of management. Mm. Um, Yeah, and, and certainly it has to do with very small things like, you know, less command and control, more inclusivity. Um... But there are lots of you know little tactical things as well um, that uh, that I've been researching that are that are fascinating. Mm. Yeah. And, and what does a, a, the new form uh, of leadership in light of all this change? What does it look like in in practice? So certainly, it's a lot more of it is about helping your people uh, create clarity in terms of where we're going as an organization, but having them be part of that conversation. Once everyone is aligned about where you need to go, the 20th century manager's uh, instinct would be to then say how we're going to get there. The 21st century manager, I hope, will say, now we've defined where we want to go, and we all buy into that. So now you tell me, or you let's create you know, dozens or hundreds of little experiments that will help us identify the right direction of travel for us. Um, because it, what we have to ask ourselves um, is at the moment our organizations seem to be struggling with the fact that we collectively are less innovative, adaptable, and inspirational than the human beings in our organizations. Surely if we get management right, then collectively our organizations should be exponentially more innovative, adaptable, and inspirational Mm. than any single human being in it. At the moment, that isn't the case. Um, But we see a lot of what, when Gen Ys describe their careers and how they wish to be led, we're starting to see some of that, some of those those answers Mm. into where we might evolve. 
so a less bureaucratic form of leadership in practice yeah and i think that's probably the biggest part of this um Professor Gary Hamill has, has talked a lot about this, but I think he's right. If, if there's anywhere you, where you're asking yourself, where do I start? If you have to start anywhere, I would start with bureaucracy mm. and exploding the handicap of bureaucracy in our organizations. And um, at the conference, you'll be talking about uh, future-focused leadership. Um, how can leaders adopt future-focused methods uh, in their leadership today? Well, one thing I've, I've already referred to is uh, better leverage the wisdom of your crowd. Mm. Um, leadership is no longer about the singular wise man or woman uh, right at the top of the, of the pyramidal hierarchy. Mm. Um, how do you leverage uh, all the experiences um, and, and uh, perceptions of your dozens, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of people. Because actually what research shows is that crowds collectively are really good about deciding you know, which direction to go in. I mean, for example, look at markets like the New York Stock Exchange. The NYSE is, uh, has, has created a better return collectively than any individual equity within the NYSE. Mm. I think crowds are probably pretty bad about brainstorming because a huge crowdsourced brainstorming uh, exercise um, sometimes creates chaos, but huge crowds are really good about saying, no, pick this, not that. Yeah. That's why when, when if you ever watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, um, ask the audience is the, is the, has the highest odds of being correct. Yeah. Not always, yeah. but just better odds than, you know. The funny thing is most people wait uh, they they hold on to the lifeline of phone a friend until the very end. Actually, it should be exactly the reverse. Don't assume that any individual has a monopoly on wisdom. Mm. A crowd is much more likely to. So I think as leaders, we have to learn humility. Yeah, <laughs> and and ask more questions rather than be seen to be or perceive that we have to be some kind of paragons of wisdom. And and. Uh, There'll be a lot of people listening to this who might think that when we, when I ask you the question of future-focused leadership, that that means that you might have to sacrifice something in the short term. Um, do you subscribe to that idea? Um, and how can leaders pass the expectations of the future with their deliverables in, in, in the here and now? Yes. I, I certainly think there isn't a trade-off. And actually what a lot of research shows is that the more... Uh, long-term your horizon, right? The more you're focused on purpose, for example, which is, by the way, what Gen Ys are asking from mm. their organization, the more successful you are financially. So I think when a lot of organizations don't adopt sort of Gen Y paradigms of, of, of leadership or how to lead their organizations, they think there's a trade-off. If I were to adopt some of, some of those paradigms, I am sacrificing the fundamentals of business, like revenue and profit. Actually, it's exactly the reverse. Um, books like Firms of Endearment demonstrate that those organizations that have a strong collective shared purpose outperform their competitors by at least 10 to 1 financially. Um, also, what we see is in, in the vanguard of forward-looking organizations is that those organizations that say, Let's be innovative. Let's experiment. Let's keep our eye on the horizon rather than short-term quarterly reports or forecasts. 
actually the market can reward them for that. So if you look at, for example, Unilever, mm-hmm. former CEO Paul Pullman, when he said, I am no longer doing quarterly forecasts to the analyst community, the market didn't punish him for that. But that's why most CEOs continue to do quarterly forecasts. They assume that you know analysts need these need uh, regular uh, updates. Mm. But of course, if you're focused on three month cycles, you can never think about your your moonshot innovations. Those are always going to take a back seat. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we find uh, as organizations we tend not to be particularly innovative because we tend to fiddle at the edges of innovation rather than do anything um, truly transformational. Okay. So the, the theme of the conference this year is uh, humanity and technology. So what role does technology play in supporting this new future-focused mode of leadership? If nothing else, what we find is as organizations become more global and teams become more global and dispersed across a number of geographies, we have to think about how do we improve team dynamics, leadership of teams um, in a, in a, a virtual space. Um, so I mentioned some of that does have to do with wisdom of crowds. Some of it also has to do with the role of the leader in creating the right dynamic. So how do you facilitate a conversation with teams where you have members that are on four different continents. Some of that might have to do with having your dynamic occur on totally different platforms or media. For example, even today, most of us assume that meetings, even across different geographies, have to be synchronous, Mm. right? We have to find a time, and sorry, you people in Japan, tough, you've gotta, you know, join in your pajamas. Yeah. But actually, you know, in the social media age, can we not have a productive, proper dialogue with a number of people, for example, on what, what we would pejoratively call a chat room mm. over a couple of days and probably get some of the same, if not better, results? Okay. And uh, to look forward a little bit further, um, what will the C-suites of the future look like in the hands of, of, the, of the next generation? Or even or Gen Y. Yeah. Well, first is I think this long-term focus. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that can only be a good thing. Second is uh, the idea of sustainability not being a trade-off with financial performance. There's lots of new emerging research that demonstrates, again, those organizations that uh, execute on their sustainability mission outperform their competitors. Um and then I think there's this point, and this goes back to my, my um, conclusion about the evolution of, of capitalism, is that the C-suites of the future are going to be much more focused on the outputs of the business, meaning how do we add more value to customers, serve different needs or serve needs better, and how do we make sure that our employees um, are fully engaged in that mission versus the outcomes, which is the bottom line, the financial performance. Mm. That financial performance, that's just a report card. That is enhanced when you serve your customers and enhance their value. But a lot of organizations throughout the 20th century, as they became immersed in shareholder capitalism, focused on the outcome versus the outputs. Why are we in the business we are in in the first place? Mm -hmm. And this brings us back to purpose. So I think it's going to be much more of the C-suite's job is to deal with some of those qualitative 
measures of why businesses do what they do and what that value proposition is. And then the outcomes, the your annual P&L, for example, um, takes care of itself a bit more. Um, and just on this point of employee, uh, adding employee value, there's a fascinating book by the CEO of HCL Technologies called a guy named Vinit Nayar, who wrote a book, I believe, called Employees First, Customers Second. Now, it's quite a provocative statement, but I think the point he's making is that unless you have employees who are fully bought into what you're doing and are fully empowered to keep improving what you do on a daily basis, how possibly could you say you're serving your customers uh, as best you can? Mm -hmm. So I think that that dual focus of customer and employee focus is a stakeholder focus that will serve us better in the in the 21st century. And at least what I found in my client work as well as in my own organization is that Gen Y have been saying that for years. Yeah. We just have to open our ears a little bit. Mm. And so what do you think is, is the, the best way of cultivating leaders um, the future C-suites? And uh, what can businesses implement now to provide opportunity and learning uh, for their Gen Y workers? Well, one of the main things that the, uh, the Gen Ys that I've surveyed and interviewed have told me they want right away and as much as possible is development, right? Personal career development. Now, 20th century paradigm would say, oh, that's far too expensive. Or, oh, we only give you that when you you know, are promoted in five years' time. Well, as the research already shows, in five years' time, most of them are going to be, be gone. gone. Yeah. So, but there are so many things you can do that actually constitute development that aren't expensive and, in fact, are often free. And I've tested this in dozens of interviews. I said, you know, would this be valuable to you? Would you consider this to be development? And the answers have always been yes. And these are things like, well, more senior projects, coaching, secondments, mentoring, shadowing, international placements. These are all development opportunities, but they're in role. You aren't even taking the person out of the business. You're enhancing their professional development. And actually, one of the most powerful mechanisms I've discovered is reverse mentoring. Mm. The idea of if there is a lot to be learned from Gen Y, then let's pair them up with the C-suite now to get that perspective into the boardroom as quickly as possible. And it's a win-win because then for the Gen Ys, they're getting that senior access that they didn't have before, which in and of itself is a powerful development opportunity that many of their colleagues and other organizations aren't getting. So now, as an organization, you have a recruitment and retention tool that's very compelling. And uh, just to, to finish, um, one thing that uh, has underpinned all of these questions and also the questions that you'll be answering at the, at the conference uh, is the management of change. Um, so what is your advice to, leader that are, that, to leaders that are managing these changes and also to the young leaders of the future uh, that are likely to be working in a very different workplace to the one that they find themselves in? Yeah. I would say the, f the most important lesson I've ever learned in terms of managing fundamental change in the 21st century is we have to think like activists rather than Napoleon, right? Napoleon would plan for many weeks and put out a map and, you know, uh, and delegate across his officers and put all your, your little toy soldiers on and move them across the map. And look, <laughs> we have to think about talking to our people on an individual basis 
create a little bit of momentum, then share it with you know another team, build some more momentum, um, use social media to share your ideas with the wider organization. Just think about all the different ways in which some of the mo- some of the biggest movements happened. They started small and they gained momentum, and they mainly started bottom up. Mm. What I'm finding more and more is that for organizations that say we need fundamental change, if it's change that's announced from the C-suite and it's expected to be cascaded down, is almost always a recipe for failure Mm. versus those that percolated up and ultimately reached the C-suite. Hopefully with the CEO's endorsement and sponsorship all along, but not architected by the C-suite. All of those uh, ways in which we have made fundamental changes to society, such as the the destruction of patriarchy, the destruction of slavery, et cetera, all these things started small and grew as a movement. Mm. So I would say, how do you create big change in your organization? Start a movement. Great place to leave it. Adam, thanks so much for speaking uh, with us today. We look forward to having you at the conference. Thank you. Thank you. Adam will be joining us at the 6th Future Talent Conference at the Royal Geographical Society in London on the 21st of March. Our lineup of speakers include the CEO of Stonewall, Ruth Hunt, author and journalist Matthew Saeed, and philosopher Robert Roland Smith. Visit ftconf2019.com. That's ftconf2019.com to register for your ticket. Thanks for listening. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon.